Well, before we get started, I wanted to let everyone listening know that uh, there's a pop-up happening this weekend in Sydney at Only Coffee Projects. That's Sunday the 8th of October at Only Coffee Project in Crow's Nest, Sydney. It's going to be awesome, isn't it, David? Yeah, mate. I wish I was there. Yeah, well, there's going to be some cracking coffees. Uh, so I will see you there at Only Coffee Project, Sunday 8th of October, 9am to 4pm. It's going to be tasty. See you there. I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. Would you like to come upstairs for some coffee? No, no, thanks. I can't drink coffee late at night. It keeps me up. <laughs> God damn it, we're back, everyone, and David Train's here. How are you? Good, mate. I'm, um, I'm nervous. It's like uh, on the radio where it's like long-time listener and first-time caller. Okay. So calling in like Neil Mitchell, I think, is the, the, the main guy here. They always say that. But welcome. It's good to have you. Thanks, mate. It's nice to see you. We've got a big topic coming up today. We do. Yeah. We do. One I've been wanting to uh, sort of – I've had on the back burner for a little while. Um, and I'll tell you what, I'm very glad I've got you here to discuss it. Yeah, it's a complicated one. And – there's no real easy or right answer sometimes. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's introduce you. So you, besides being a multiple uh, time place getter in the Australian Brewers Cup, which is no small feat, I don't say this as a like you're the only person that I know of to have brewed a perfect coffee. You literally scored what was it? What, what was it? A hundred. A hundred out of a hundred. Yes. And somehow still didn't win. <laughs> The only person to be perfect, but perfect, was not good enough. And you were using a Hartman anaerobic natural that year, weren't you? Finger Hartman, yeah, an amazing coffee. One of the best coffees, uh, one of the best farms known to man, Finger Hartman. Hands down. Hands down. What did that coffee taste like? What, what, what gets you 100 out of 100? Oh, that coffee that year was just, um, it was strawberries, cherries, melons, tropical, floral. It was just in, intense, but in all the right, in all the right directions. Um, one of those coffees that's sort of generational. Mm. You know, it's just something that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Is it the kind of thing like you'll never brew anything as good again? Like you did it so good that time and it's <sighs> kind of like you don't even know if you're meant to do it that good and it will just never repeat itself? That actual day and time and everything, I knew everything was perfect because I'd done so bad in compulsory and I just went on stage and absolutely just had literally the time of my life. Um, but I have brewed better coffee what, what what could be better than that? Tell me. I brewed a Finca Nuguo um, from Jose Gallardo. It was an anaerobic natural um, about a year and a half ago, um, just in a cafe with Heath Dazil. And there was no special routine to it. It was just some of his water and it was like a leftover dose. And that coffee was just... I like Heath Dalziel. I think he was just like a walk-on start, first-time competitor, then just won the, the whole competition, um, which, was, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> He's I absolutely love Heath, and if he's listening to it, he's, he's a genuinely good good mate of mine. But he likes to call himself the Stephen Bradbury of the Australian <laughs> coffee industry. And Stephen Bradbury, for those listening in Australia or abroad, um, is the guy who, in like the figure skating, everyone else fell over, and he just raced through the top. And I think he's selling himself short there. So as do I. But um, you know, Tom Hutchins did the same thing this year in the Australian Brewers Cup, and he was well. he was, I mean. Obviously, you don't get a chance to taste the coffees, but looking at him, understanding what Tom was doing, you just watch in awe. Well, I've got some of his coffee here, actually. We're serving it at the pop-up this weekend, if you're interested, um, and it's incredible. Oh, if, if I can do any more travel, then, then maybe I'll ask the wife, but I don't think I can this weekend. I'll give you a dose. But um, it's, it's, it's such a strange coffee. Like It honestly tastes like 
confectionery just popping in your mouth. It's um, yeah, quite crazy. And I'd never had churrasco until this year. So I think I've tried it once, and I think from Harry, Harry Co. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I can get a chance to try it again, then I'd never say no. Okay, so uh, what have you been doing in your career up until now? So we, we were just discussing that you actually spent a bit of time in the wine industry. Yes, um, I guess, do you want the, the short and sweet version of, I guess, my hospitality coffee career? Sure. Yeah, so I worked at McDonald's in Sydney from the age of 13 to about 17, 18. And then uh, I finished school and I wanted to be a soldier. And uh, I was just working uh, in a sort of an admin job in the city and my dad decided to buy a cafe and I had absolutely no desire to work in it. I didn't drink coffee. Um, I just helped him washing dishes and he just continuously asked me to help him more and more and more. So eventually I got behind the machine, sort of really enjoyed that and that was about, that was 2006, 2007 in Sydney uh, and after about three years he sold it and I was like, okay, uh, what do I do now? Um, no longer wanted to be a soldier. Quite enjoyed just having a little more, I guess, uh, freedom in my life of, of what I can and can't do at whatever times I want. Um, and so I decided to, to move to London uh, and made a lot of coffee in a, in a beautiful place called the Wolseley in, uh, in Piccadilly. Um, we're doing about 12, 1,200 coffees a day. Um, wow. It was click mazes, you know, no scales, no nothing. This is 2009 in London. Wow. Um, and then got asked to help open up a, a French wine and cocktail bar. Uh, with a friend of mine and was originally meant to be helping the group. There was about six restaurants with coffee, but we were making 10 to 15 coffees a day. So I ended up spending a lot more time focusing on wine and cocktails. Uh, And then that was two years of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then moved across to Germany and landed in a small city called Osnabrück um, and got a job working for a roaster. And this was probably the first time in my life where I felt even though I've been making coffee for about six or seven years, that maybe I can make this as a career. Like this is my thing. Um, I was like, I had, I guess, a little bit of a barista skill set, um, but I was extremely inquisitive to, you know, you see the raw coffee and you just, where is this from? How does it get here? You know, I was extremely inquisitive on, on that aspect. Um, and so I like to say to people, and I don't want to offend anyone, but I stopped giving a shit about lattes and I started caring more about the coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from Osnabrück, um, I was back in the UK working for a wood-powered coffee roastery, um, helping to do training and quality control throughout, uh, the, I guess, the Midlands and, and uh, the Cotswolds of the UK, um, and then back to Germany, uh, working for an awesome place called Man vs. Machine, um, helping set up some of their cafes. And um, then I kind of got to my late 20s and was like, I miss home um and as much fun as it was in europe i was pretty poor um Mm. making coffee didn't really pay the bills no it never really does no um so i figured if i was going to be poor um i may as well go home Mm. um and flew back to australia and and got a job at code black um looking after their their training um and in 2019 then took the the step into into green coffee um when I was in Europe, I, I did some of my uh, SEA, uh, or now it was SEAE at the time, but um, green bean and sensory uh, courses. So I was really trying to up my education in, in that aspect. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, since 2019, I've been involved in as a green 
coffee importer. And now you're working for Ally Coffee. Exactly, Ally Coffee, yes. Um, so I'm now uh, looking after the Asia-Pacific region for Ally, um, and we are a sort of, I guess, a global integrated um, coffee importing business. And how's that all going? It's amazing, absolutely eye-opening. Um, I'm extremely privileged to, to be able to, to do what I do and to, to deal with the people that I, that I deal with. What are some of the, what's like the versatility of coffee that you do? So you sell blenders, you sell microlots, you sell nanolot, what like? Yeah, really it's sort of, um, it's connecting roasters with something that they need essentially, um, whether that is like a regional coffee or, or, you know, in brackets blender, uh, or if it's a competition lot, or if it is, you know, something that's a, you know, a higher scoring uh, microlot that comes in, you know, only smaller amounts. So it's, I guess, trying to understand their needs for their business and helping to facilitate that for them. All right. Now, the reason why you're here, we were discussing over, you would listen to a podcast and then you messaged me and the topic of the price of coffee came up. And it's something I feel like you and I have spoken about a lot in in the years past. Um, I've probably known you since you got back to Australia. And um, yeah, so I, I feel like this is something you and I d- discussed quite a bit. Um I'll start off with the the blanket general question. Is coffee too cheap? Yes, in the easiest answer, but it's quite a complicated topic. Okay, so we're talking about, say, and I feel like there's a few layers to this and we'll, we'll, we'll uncover it all. Let's start at the farmer, so the, the producer, and I feel like um, there's, there's, there's different tiers to this as well, which we'll also discuss, but... Why, why is it you think, in, in, if you're looking at the coffee producer, why is it you think the coffee price is too cheap? And, you know, I, I agree. I'm just asking the question. Why, why is it the coffee's too cheap? Um, I think the reason that it is too cheap is because, I mean, like if you just look at it as a monetary value for uh, any product, it, it is quite low. Um, and so for the amount of work it takes to produce uh, a kilo of, of green coffee, it is not a lot of money to actually paid back to the producer. Um, so I, I guess the, the amount of work against the, the sort of the output and then the actual monetary reward, in my opinion, doesn't match. And therefore, that translates all the way down to the consumer. And it's something that's... It's like the, the whole industry is kind of at risk as well, right? Like the with you know, climate change or um, you know, varying weather patterns, if you will, um, sort of having an impact on harvesting. So I think there was... A, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there were, for example, there was a few years ago where there was like a massive um, harvest in Brazil and it was because of late rainfall or uh, rainfall that was like three or four weeks before the harvest began and it just meant this like 30 to 40% increase on production from the last year and it just meant that obviously because there was so much more coffee, the coffee price was cheaper and then everyone was getting so much less for their coffee and that was a problem. So there's like little shocks like that. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, the the way in which the price of coffee is 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 sort of, I guess, dictated is extremely complicated and and, and complex. But yeah, it's supply and demand. If there's more coffee, it costs less. If there's less coffee, it costs more. At the end of the day, um, and yeah, I guess pre twenty nineteen, coffee was really cheap. Um, if you're looking at the sort of the sea market price, it was sub one hundred cents US cents per pound. Um, which uh, there's, I guess. It's hard to say, but there's a general rule that the cost of production is roughly 160 cents per pound. Um, so, if, you know, you're selling coffee at, uh, you know, 70, what is it, 70 cents um, below cost. Um, so, yes, it was, it's 
a little yeah. more complicated than that, but. Do you think a lot of, uh, I haven't seen any data on this, but do you think a lot of producers would have left the industry since then because they were sort of going through that? Yeah, there was. Um, there was definitely a sort of a shift of, of producers, just there was no viability, um, particularly with younger farmers, you know, moving into cities to study, getting a better education, moving abroad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then when we had COVID and obviously lots of other factors came along and the, the, the price increased, there was actually a little bit of a drawback, you know, people wanting to come back to help help the farm or the family. Um, so there was a, an increase in that. But it was it's, it's always been a, a challenge even in rural Australia, for example, to, to keep the youth, you know, to incentivize them to, to continue to work on the land because it's, it's hard mm. and you're not getting paid a lot. Mm. Well, it's, there's kind of like a food security element to this as well, right? Like if um, y- you're right to mention Australia, I've, I've spent some time working in the dairy industry and it's like a lot of dairy farmers have experienced more or less the same thing. We had a problem in Australia where, you know, milk was a dollar a litre. It was cheaper than water, um, which, you know, you do the math on, that's just crazy. And so farmers in just have left in droves. Now the milk price in Australia has almost doubled from two years ago. So it's just like this inflationary effect that's you know there's a little bit more to it than just that but a lot of farmers have left the industry because it's just become not viable and i fear the same thing could happen in coffee as well right yeah definitely and also or or they're looking at diversification they're looking at different crops some of them might be planting woods or different you know hardwoods or 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 trees for for for, for deforest not sorry not for deforestation but for for selling for woods or they're looking at avocados or they're just literally looking at at a crop diversification um to sort of safeguard their business. Mm. And so, okay, so right now we're in a situation where I feel like so, there's so many losers in the coffee supply chain. So, like, it's, all, it's, one, it's one thing to say, yeah, we don't pay coffee farmers enough, and that's unambiguously true. But it's also another thing to, I, I, would, I would argue that in Australia, it's like we sell it for too cheap as well, um, and then, but it's too hard to sell it for more expensive uh, to, to charge more for it. So it's just a bit of a tricky situation. It's um, something that I think I've maybe offended many people here about is that the fact that we we clearly charge too little in Australia for a cup of coffee. Um, Australians view coffee as a, as a necessity, not as a luxury. A human right, I say. Yes. Uh, and the issue is that we have access to, to coffee almost anywhere, every petrol station, uh, every bar, every restaurant, um, and more there's or less, a, there's a golf shop across the road from here that has a really nice golf setup, but also a coffee machine in there. And I'm like, Ooh. and and then that's sort of the the oversaturation of availability of coffee um, gives uh, you know the, the the general consumer, which is probably not you or I, they just don't want to pay more because why would I spend four, five, six dollars when I can go around the corner and it's two, three, four. And it's uh, we've kind of pigeonholed ourselves into this um, situation in Australia where we just can't get consumers to pay more. We've had a little bit of, of luck with just inflation in terms of now customers have to pay more. They understand because everything else is more expensive. However, if it wasn't for that, there, was, there would be no way in which we could get consumers to pay more in Australia. And I was going to say this part to later, but I think it's really important that we bring it up now. I think coffee wholesalers are a big part of the problem as well. Um, so that's that's the coffee roaster uh, that the, sells the people to, that I help supply. Okay, the, yeah, the people that you know, and God, I love them, but there's some out there that just put out ridiculous. If you're a business owner, 
you're obliged to manage your costs, right? And you know, rightly so. Like, the, if you if someone comes along to you with and let, let's let's try and paint this paint a picture of this to someone who doesn't work in the industry and and they they they're listening to this and this is all new. So, say for example, you've got a wholesale coffee supplier. They supply you machinery. You buy about forty kilos a week. That you know that you get you charge. They pay. They charge about thirty dollars per kilo per se, and even that's pretty modest. Um, and, and and that's that's how much you buy. So what's thirty times forty? Get my calculator here. Twelve hundred, I think. Twelve. So you're spending twelve hundred bucks a week on coffee. So thirty times forty. Yep, you're right. Twelve hundred bucks on coffee. All right. Someone comes along to you and says they can do the same, give you the exact same thing for twenty times thirty. Yep. Hold on, twenty times forty. So that's eight hundred bucks a week, thirty three percent saving. You just get, you're just switching wholesale supplier. You got to just do it, right? Yeah, but yeah, of course. But that that wholesaler that's giving you the alternative deal, they're just sort of selling in volume, and they're not really necessarily making good money off it. They're probably I'd argue a lot of them aren't really transparent about the coffee they put in the blends that they supply you as well. But if you're if you're a business owner. It's kind of too hard to say no to, right? I think it's 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 also um, extremely, you know, attractive for that that proposition for someone to say, "Look, I can I'm going to give you a coffee, and it might not taste as good, but it's you know, as you said, thirty three percent less as any business owner. You'd you'd say, yeah, sure, why not? Like it's, um, and then that cafe is still going to charge the same price per cup. Mm. Um, so it's. Yeah, it's a tough one. But then again, you put yourself into the position of the consumer on the street. If you've got a small coffee for $5 at one shop and $6 at the next and you buy it every day, you know, it stacks up. Yeah, exactly. Mm. People are drinking four, five, six coffees a day. Mm. You know, that, that's, uh, that's, you know, what is that, $30 a week, give or take, if you work in business week. Yeah, that's it's a significant amount of money. It's just we have had... A race. I think Maxwell Colin and Ashwood had a really good podcast on this, and it's as a conversation he was talking about ha- happened in the UK, but had also referenced what had happened in Australia. It was like a race to the bottom. It was who can give the most for the least, um, and we are seeing a little bit of a pushback with wholesale machinery, etc. Now these days, I think a lot of roasters are saying, "I can't outlay forty or fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment for your cafe, um, but I might be able to save you a dollar or two off per kilo if you buy yourself, which is probably a little bit more feasible and sustainable for, for the roaster. There's probably a few more factors involved in that. So there's like the interest rates or, you know, you know, the price to borrow money. And so, you know, financing these sorts of things is probably becoming a lot less sustainable for a lot of coffee roasters as well. Yeah, it's it's like everyone is borrowing money to pay for something. Um, you know, that roaster might be hitting up uh, like your lovely podcast person previously, Jamie, um, you know, they might be talking to his business to help them to finance, you know, and then an importer, we are helping to finance the costs of raw coffee. And then the cafe is helping to finance that back to them. Mm. And so it's, it's a vicious cycle of, of, you know, give and take. You know, and, and somewhere in that scenario, something has to drop. In which, which part of that is that going to be? The quality of the coffee, the price of the coffee, how much you charge a customer. Um, that's a, that's a, that's, the hard part to answer. Mm. And, but I, I guess in the same token, it's like it, it, if you're a cafe owner, it kind of, 
I feel like consumers, you know, there is a sizable amount of consumers that pick based on, you know, the quality and, you know, the feel they get from coming to your venue. It's the difference between going to a 7-Eleven and going to a cafe, right? Like if you're selling on value and... I, for me, I, as a, my, my, my personal view is I've always preferred to go to a cafe that has exceptional customer service over exceptional coffee. Um, if you can match both, then clearly you're a winner and that doesn't normally happen. But any venue that has just like, you know, a good vibe, great people, you can go in there and maybe the coffee wasn't up to scratch one day, but the barista was sick, someone didn't come in, etc., etc. as opposed to some venues where you go in and the coffee is exceptional, but the, the atmosphere is stale. Um, and in Australia, we have quite a luxury of if that happens, you can just probably walk 50 meters down the road and there's another cafe and, and maybe the vibe or the atmosphere is, is greater and the coffee isn't maybe as good, um, mm. but you enjoy it because you're leaving the house for a reason. You've got 10 minutes of someone's life to, to engage with them, to interact with them. And, you know, for me, it was always like, this is so much better to go somewhere where I feel awesome i feel good well the the atmosphere makes it right like i even get that here i've got a freezer full of fantastic coffee just there but i prefer to go to a cafe a lot of the time because you know i prefer to be around people the ambiance hearing the you know the 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 port uh filter just banging on the knockbox yeah and i think it's the fact that now particularly after covid and and um the lockdowns and everything going on people want to go somewhere as a treat reward and they want to feel something um and a good example of this is Patricia, Patricia Coffee Brewers in the city. It's like, I think they make twelve to 1,500 cups of coffee a day, which is an unbelievable amount of coffee for a specialty shop, um, or for any coffee shop, really. And it's been there for 10, 15 years, but you just get the same thing every day, and the owners there are so focused on on, on just producing the same thing day, time in, time out. So that would, that would play to what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like venues like Patricia are... are Oh, almost one in a million, really. Like they have nailed quality, service, speed, efficiency, um, and atmosphere all in one. Um, it, it, they make the joy of waiting in line fun, as opposed to I don't wait in line for anything. I'm, I don't have patience enough. That's why I don't live in Melbourne anymore because I don't, I can't wait. Mm. If the venue is so good, there's a line. That's awesome. I feel like lining up for things is just now in Australia, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, kind of. Yeah, and, that, like, and that's fine. Like it, it means the place is doing well, and that's awesome. I just, I just don't have the patience. Uh, I'm just turning into a grumpy old man. I, we're, we're getting old, you and I, David. Yeah. Um, but back to the coffee price thing. So the end effect of not going to, not paying more for your coffee at the cafe, charging more, you know, as a wholesaler, is that you're putting sort of downward pressure on the producer, and you know, there's. There's many reasons why there are going to be less producers in the future. So for one, the economic viability of it not necessarily being there. Two, it's just too hard. Um, three, it, you know, it could be sort of one thing we experience in Australia is that big farms are being sold and in, plotted up into many plots of land and being sold off for hobby farms. So that's a whole bunch of viable arable land that's just being turned into hobby farms sort of thing. So that could be maybe that's something that affects... Um, overseas producers as well climate change so i mean we've had hurricane Ita in the last couple of years that wiped out a lot of crops affected a lot of farms in panama and the honduras and you know it could be diseases like coffee leaf rust in 2013 that was a massive event there's so many things so and and then of course i don't really think the coffee consuming base 
or the amount of coffee consumers in the world is shrinking. It's probably more likely growing. And so, you know, a growing population of coffee drinkers versus a shrinking amount of producers, you can see the end result there, right? Yeah, I think you're 100% correct that coffee is not, we're not slowing down in consumption. We are actually increasing. And there is this region that we are a part of, um, although we feel ourselves that we are somewhat isolated from, called Asia. Um, and Asia has, a, has an amazing coffee culture. Um, generally, local coffee style is a little bit different, but they are you know, awakening for, for higher-end and specialty coffees. Um, and so that is going to increase the, the supply and demand. And, and the more people that want to drink coffee, actually, the more coffee's going to cost. Um, but if there's less people to produce it, it's going to make coffee costs you know, even greater. So it's a like chicken and an egg scenario. Like, so if less producers are producing coffee, we will then end up having you know, less coffee and therefore price goes up. But if um, you know, Asia starts drinking coffee daily um, as, a, as a, you know, like a necessity, as we view it in Australia, as opposed to a luxury, uh, we won't be able to keep up with demand. And this is, it'd be an interesting to get your sort of perspective having worked in the wine industry as well because you've got this sort of parallel of um, this product where people will only pay so much for it. It's to be had you know, in the mornings and on demand and quick, pay X amount for it versus wine where it's like, yeah, you can get a cheap bottle at your own discretion or you can, you know, you're more than willing to pay extra for a good bottle. I think it's 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 hard to to relate the two, but I think it's also for the fact that having a few too many glasses of wine is a little more enjoyable than having a few too many coffees. Yeah, true. And so people tend to, uh, you know, they have a limit. They'll be like, oh, you know, I can't have any more coffee today. It gives me anxiety, it gives me the jitters, I can't sleep, etc. But um, I guess the alcohol and the inhibition, oh, I'll have another glass, another glass. But it is, in Australia, we have the luxury of, of having... Uh, vineyards and wineries and cellar doors on our doorstep. So we have the amazing opportunity to go in, understand, see, basically see the production, talk to the, you know, in brackets producer, the grower, the viticulturalist, the winemaker, and we get a lesson along the way and we value that and we are therefore happy to pay for it. And my opinion is that coffee is kind of out of sight, out of mind. Like we love coffee, we drink it every day, we get it everywhere, but majority of the consumers probably have no idea that it's a fruit to begin with. Mm. And it's, Maybe the ignorance is bliss. It's not that they don't want to know. It's just that maybe we in the industry haven't really given them the right education or given them the, haven't had a chance to show them where coffee comes from. But like we are in Melbourne right now, you can go to the Yarra Valley or the Mornington Peninsula or the Bellarine Peninsula all within an hour and a half of here and visit multiple award-winning wineries. And so, and then playing onto it as well, like it's kind of this, um, it's kind of an uh, item of status as well. Like if, if you're you know, the NBA winning team, then you go out and buy like $100,000 bottles of champagne to, sell, to celebrate. And so, you know, just the, the situations like that, it's a luxury item. And yeah, 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 it is. It is. Wine uh, is, is a luxury item that's, that's grown and, and consumed in the global north. Um, whilst coffee, coffee is, 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 it should be a luxury item. But it's you know it's, it's generally grown grown in the in the global south in terms of economical south, um, but consumed in the global north. But I would argue that it's fast becoming a luxury item. Yes, and the rate year on year is just becoming unbelievable. Like some coffees, yes, yeah. So and and th- th- this is a good segue into this topic actually. So um, one thing that sort of you and I discussed was that. There are some coffees, and I'm kind of contradicting myself here, but there's some coffees that are a little bit too expensive, and I'm kind of like, 
well, that's just getting ridiculous. And this is even more hypocritical coming from a guy that has pop-ups stealing $30 cups of coffee. There's one this weekend, by the way. So, you know, but but even that, it's getting, like, too hard to get, like, good stuff. And the model's kind of changed a bit. So, you know, coffee farms, like, producers, they're having their own individual auctions now. So you think, like, Geisha Villages and Esmeraldas and stuff – well, they don't need to have an individual relationship with you and negotiate a good price with you anymore. Their coffee's going to sell, yeah. So they just put it on a on a on an auction and sold to the highest bidder. Um, and I think they. Sorry to interrupt you, but there's a similar thing to relate that to wine, where you have some of these amazing established wineries or winemakers. They have allocations. You cannot buy that wine. We will give you this wine. Um, or you need to be sort of on, on the list because that wine's going to sell. And, and now I think we're seeing that in in coffee, particularly in some farms in, in, in you know, for example, Panama, et cetera, where that coffee is, uh, you're now buying a brand. You're not necessarily buying a product. You're buying coffee from X farm because this coffee every year historically has scored, cupped, brewed, exceptional. And now you are just paying for that. And most people are buying these coffees without ever trying them. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Uh, one producer that's sort of just, for me, just come into the scene out of nowhere in the last few years is Longboard Coffee. Yep. So Justin, who owns that, and it's like he only he's only got a very small farm and he only produces so much, but like so many people are just willing to pay so much more for that coffee now. And he's actually an ex-wine producer as well, I'm led to believe. And so like that that's another example of just like, his coffee is so sought after and the nature of like the coffee drinking population is kind of different from region to region as well. Like you think the Middle East now where a lot of it is like a Muslim population and of course Muslims, I believe it's part of their um, belief system to, to not drink alcohol. And so, you know, coffee is of large appeal to them. So you think countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and uh, the UAE, some yeah, so some of those countries just pay unbelievable amounts of coffee now. I think, yeah, it was 90 plus that had an auction, oh, I think it was 2019 or 2020, where uh, they sold a lot for 10,000 US a kilo. And that was to the... Uh, Espresso Lab? Espresso yeah. Lab, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in the UAE. But that record was broken recently by Carmen Estate, I think. I think it was broken. So have you had... That was good. No, I think it was the highest for the best of Panama, but not highest for because like, the ninety plus uh, auction wasn't a you know a best of Panama or a, a COE. It was okay. their own individual auction. Mm. But I believe yes, the, the Carmen Estate this year was the highest individual price per per coffee f- from the best of Panama. And so I, I think we worked out the cost price of that. And I was I was talking to someone. And we worked out the cost price of that if you were to just sell it. Um, at a coffee shop, it'd be like minimum two hundred dollars. So you'd to, that's just the cost. So you'd have to sell it for two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars to actually to for it to be worthwhile. Who can afford that? Someone, mm. not you or I, mm. but clearly someone or you know a small amount of people are willing to pay because this may seem like something unaffordable to you or I, but. Someone out there that has clearly deeper pockets than what we have is happy to pay for that coffee, for that experience. And it might be a vanity thing. It could be a status thing. It could be whatever. It's like, oh, no, there's a $300 coffee. I'm going to buy that. $300 but, I think, per but, cup. but I think the guy who bought it, bought it was in New Zealand this year. It's like, 
Coffee tech. Yeah, and I love New Zealand, but who's going to buy that in New Zealand? New Zealand's an interesting market. It's a little bit different to what we have here. Um, and I, I believe most of that kind of coffee tends to end up in-house or in, in the competition world. So a lot of roasters that buy some of these extremely high-end coffees, they either sell them maybe at a loss or they're saved for the competition world. Or if you have the luxury of working for the roaster, you end up drinking quite a lot of it. But here's the issue I'm having with it, right? And so... I'm all for these producers earning a buck. And, you know, who am I to say, don't sell your coffee for as much as you can? You should. I'd probably do the, I'd probably do the exact same thing if I was them. But, you know, the, the industry sort of voice in me says, like, are we, are we kind of getting to a p- point of no return where it's like we are turning coffee into wine where only sort of rich people can afford to, to drink the very best stuff? And it's probably not necessarily the rich people that got the coffee there in the first place. It's, you know, baristas working in, in Singapore, in... in in America, in Melbourne, in, in all these places, they kind of made these farms what they are and, you know, gave them the coffee drinking audience and in all over the world. And now the, the, the price is sort of going so high and, you know, people like people can't really afford to buy it. I was po- talking to one person we both know, I uh, won't mention on air, but they were talking about a producer where he had been buying a lot from them for, for years and years and years and had a relationship and kind of helped popularise them. And then nowadays... You know, they've come back to him in the last year or so and said, hey, that price is, the, co- the price of that coffee is now double. We're going to sell it to someone else if you don't want to buy it. And he's kind of thinking, well, I helped make you. And, you know, which is you know, a kind of fair argument. But, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they, they would have had success somewhere else, somewhere else. But, you know, you can, you can kind of see the frustration there. Um, yeah, it is. It's, 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 I guess, also like a relationship where if you know you can sell a product for more elsewhere – to someone else, you're probably going to do it. It's back to the relation with the, the, the roaster that walks into a cafe and is selling coffee for 33% less. You might love the roaster that is selling you coffee, but you can't argue with, at the end of the day, with, with the money. And, you know, you or I might buy these coffees year on year and it gets to a stage where we just can't afford them. And as you said, like, I can't tell the producer, like, you know, that's not good for your coffee. On the contrary, I think it's amazing for your business I can no longer be a part of your business. It's a little bit sad for me, for you, but someone is going to buy that coffee regardless. And uh, but uh, but on the same token, I feel like some of those coffees, like even though they're as, they're fantastic and um, and they they do earn such a high price, like a, a a similar lot from the same farm that probably scores a point or two less and is a fraction of the cost is arguably just as enjoyable, if not more. So what I love to do in coffee, as I do in wine, as I do in many things, is to try and find the point of value in which something is, you find the point of no returns. So let's say a coffee cup's at 90 or 91, but the coffee at 91 is $1,000 per kilo, but the coffee at 90 is $200 per kilo. And I'm going to taste them side by side. Um, I'm going to brew them up. I'm going to cup them. For me, in that equation, if it's only a point, I would buy the 90-point coffee because I'm saving myself $800 per kilo. So uh, I think it was uh, after regionals in 2018, I think I did the math between all the people that made it to the Asker Top 12, which is the uh, top 12 brewers in the Australian Brewers' Cup that then go compete in the nationals. Um, And my coffee was the second cheapest, yet scored the highest. Um, So I always like to try and find, and it's similar when I buy wine. It's it's like, cool, yes, this bottle might be $100 per, per bottle. This one might be 50, this one might be 20, this one might be 30. Which one, in my opinion to me and my wife tastes best and if it 
happens to be the $100 bottle. Maybe I might only buy it once. Uh, if it's a twenty or thirty dollar bottle, then for me that's that's a no brainer. But but a good a good real life example lived experience for me is um, the best of Panama from last year, the Black Jaguar Finger Hartman, and I was lucky enough to try it. Um, and um, honestly, I feel like I've had coffees from Hartman that I enjoyed more, and like it was it was a really good coffee. It's like extremely floral and like kind of you could almost say flawless. But for me, it was like too clean. Um, which is kind of sounds like a weird thing to say, but I, I, li- I like a little bit of impurity in, in coffees. A little bit of funk. A little bit of, sometimes, you know, depends on what kind of mood I'm in. But Clean like, funk. Yeah, but like you get, there's different lots from the same farm that are arguably better and cheaper. But that, I agree with you 100%. And I think that comes down to the coffee buyer being a little more savvy with what they're wanting to buy and and looking through those lots and going, you know, this washed geisha or natural geisha or whatever or typica or whatever it is from that farm is you know, just as good, you know, maybe half a point or a point less or maybe it doesn't have the prestige of, of the, the the extended fermentation or whatever, but it is go, cool, no, I would I want to buy these coffees. Um, and that's how I look at competition anyway. When I'm sourcing coffee for comp, it's, I can't afford these coffees. Uh, I'm not a roaster. I don't have a roasting business. It's, it's, for me, it's, it's just money going out, not money coming in. So it's, what can I afford and what is the best value f- for me? But the producer, at the end of the day, they're you know, good on them. They're, they're, they're going to be able to sell these coffees to someone else. And maybe I do love that coffee, but I just I can't afford it. But I kind of also see like a good situation coming from this as well. If if some producers are getting that much money for their coffee, then it probably gives hope to the other producers that hey, we can we can sort of um, make a sig- significant living doing this as well. Hundred percent. I it, it's I like to the Usain Bolt effect. So when Usain Bolt started running, um, all of his competitors started running point zero two faster, just by. When you're surrounded by greatness and you're looking and someone is doing such amazing things, it, it strives and it drives you to do better. So if you're a farmer, maybe from the same region or the same country or even a neighboring country and you you see someone doing something, maybe whether it's innovative or, or they're growing coffees or they're you know doing something like biodynamically or whatever it is, it's slightly different and they're achieving great results. It does give you hope you know it gives you a chance to be like actually maybe i will will try this and then that that farmer or producer has a chance to 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 sell their coffee there's some pretty good programs going on these days as well so you think of something like uh, la palma toucan neighbors and crops where they get um obviously lots of coffee from you know neighboring farms and they ferment it for them and like gets makes it better and they arguably get a higher price and i think they also run creativa coffee district in panama so it's, it's la palma yeah. coffee in panama which is pretty interesting and they produce some fantastic coffees yeah um, they their coffees are absolutely amazing yeah um and then you think of project origin as well with the cm selection so you're guaranteeing a like a, a premium and a price to a producer um for, you know for added value for added work and it does, yeah, it does trickle down ever so slightly. However, the rate in which it trickles down is probably slower than the way in which it trickles up. So the the producers or the the, the coffees, I shouldn't say the producers, we should say the coffees which are selling for so high are, are, are increasing exponentially year on year. And the, the rate in which these uh, producers that are producing coffees at a, at a you know, lower value, it's, it's only increasing marginally, if that. 
Yeah. So, but and and this is a parallel I want to draw from all this. So we've introduced sort of the coffee producer where where now it's like, oh, yeah, they they live they live a good lifestyle. They earn a lot for their coffee. You know, some of them drive you know lavish cars, have nice cars. I've been to a coffee producer's house, and it's like he's got a chef, and you know all that sort of stuff. Not all coffee producers are doing it tough. However, most are. So, you know, I've also been and seen coffee producers that live in a shack in the jungle, no power, no toilet, and it's kind of like, wow. So pe- people live like this, and yeah, that's a small producer and in a in a different situation. But it's kind of like this is the, this is where your where your spending power comes in as a consumer. So you look at someone like a a proud Mary or a Seven Seeds who uh, pr- uh, who published a transparency report on on the, the price of their coffee, and, the, and I'm sure there's plenty more. So there's different l- sort of tiers to it is what I'm sort of saying. So, you know, and, 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 and you know, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is to kind of shine a light on them, right? Well, yeah, and it's the, some of the roasters that you mentioned obviously do an amazing job at sourcing coffees and have been doing these kinds of things for many, many years um, and have definitely pioneering in that aspect. Um, but it is, it's sort of, I guess, where, where cooperatives and, you know, Blenders come and are extremely important. So, as a as a coffee importer, you know, majority of the coffee that we we import around the world are, are regional coffees. You know, they might come from a smaller part of, of Colombia, for example, and are made up of fifty farms. And this helps to you know generate income for for fifty families. Um, it's uh, you know a lot more economically viable than just trying to separate each individual lot from that farm. That farmer has to find a buyer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you've got a few different routes. We have some roasters that are doing phenomenal sourcing things and uh, have been buying from producers for 10, 15 years plus and build a transparency report and a transparent system. And then you have people that are helping to buy, you know, coffees in larger volumes to help generate income for, for that area. Because, you know, um, these are the coffees that, that are traded most around the world. We, um, you know, these are the non-sexy coffees, the coffees that cut between 80 to 84 points. You know, they maybe aren't, you know, the most established names or farms, but they're goddamn delicious coffees that deserve a home. But And, and where, where, where are the, the fear I sort of have in all this, if, if people aren't getting paid enough for their coffee, producers aren't getting paid enough for their coffee, and they sort of, the pattern sort of emerges that we were discussing earlier whereby, you know, they might just, be done with the industry. It's like, well, this is too hard. And for whatever reason, they sell. And then we're sort of creating this um, insecure environment to produce as much coffee as we need to consume as a, as, a, as a population. I kind of fear that there's this, and then you couple in the climate change and all that sort of stuff, we're kind of heading to a point where in the future there's just going to be a huge inflationary effect on coffee involuntarily. Like we're not really going to have a say in it. It's just going to, the price will just go up. Yes, yeah, exactly. It, as you just said, there's, it's, it's multi-layered. It's climate change. There's not enough supply, um, not enough producers, etc. Coffee will just end up costing more. And it's as you said, it, it might not even be to benefit anyone. Like let's say the cost of production jumps astronomically to $5 per pound. Um, and that just happens because of said reasons. And we as a consumer have, have no choice in that. And then coffee really does become a luxury. It really becomes something that we drink once a day. Mm. once a week potentially um, and these are for coffees that are not in the competition realm these are lower scoring coffees one other angle that i feel like you know this is me being a bit of a negative nancy doomsdayer if you will but there's a lot of geopolitical tension in the world right now you look at ukraine you look at taiwan and whatever could happen there in the next five to ten years 
I don't know if people really understand what would happen if a conflict. I'm being serious. Like if if a, if a conflict were to happen between if a, if a world war started again, say for example, one of the first things that countries do in modern day wars is cut off each other's supply lines. So it's, that means attacking people's shipping. So it's not going to be. Real, it's not realistic for for shipping to just be secure. You know, a container that you know, has all your usual goods traveling from South America through the Panama Canal, whoop, nuclear submarine destroys it. Um, you know, like, if something like that happens, you know, we're not going to be able to get coffee in a country like Australia. We don't grow it in commercial quantities like that. What happens in a situation like that? It's just like, I mean, you know, there'll be far bigger problems than, you know, not getting your daily fix. But, like, there's insecurity like that around as yeah. well, which I fear. There is. There's massive, I think, um, I, I, I sort of say it tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek with people that with my job as a coffee importer is I'm more of an international news correspondent where I am understanding geopolitical situations in, in countries and sometimes it's like strikes at a wharf uh, in Brazil or it's uh, happening in Colombia etc and relaying that information to, to roasters because one your coffee will be delayed or two it might cost slightly more because of this reason. Um, obviously world war is an extreme example but all of these little things play into into the supply and demand of coffee, the price and the actual time in which it comes in. And Australia, we're so isolated in the world. We're so far away from anything. It takes, on average, well, before COVID, it was roughly 60 days to ship from Brazil to Australia. Um, so if anything goes wrong from, from before it gets onto the ship or once it's on the ship, you know, your coffee is still going to take three to four months to actually arrive. And you look at one, like, small little factors that affect that as well like the Suez Canal blockage where literally one ship turned sideways in 2021 was it yep. and then just sort of blocked the whole Suez Canal and there was a backlog for weeks yeah. of ships that couldn't get through which is just nuts and then you know I think Panama Canal is even experiencing some problems now because of drought so it's like you know because the way the Panama Canal works is quite fascinating they have to like um, increase the level of water in some parts to let ships through it's a Watch a documentary on it. It's, it's fascinating. But little things like that have these huge consequences. Well, again, like COVID, you know, we had issues with uh, getting coffee into Australia because um, we had pretty pretty strict, tough quarantine rules. Um, and so containers would come in, the boat crews would have to quarantine, etc., and nothing was going out. So people didn't want to ship to Australia because those ships, you know, it, they don't do one-way journeys. They, they continue pick up things, drop it off, and continue elsewhere. Um, and that also then can create a, a short in supply and demand, and therefore people are looking to buy more coffees that's already in the country, spot coffee, and that can then cost more because you need to replace that stock later with something that doesn't exist yet. So it's it's yeah the, the factors in which um, supply and demand and logistics play on coffee is... is are, there, are there some other things that I haven't really mentioned here that would, would, would cause a bit of a shock to it? Like... What are some of the unforeseen things that we can't, or we don't know about yet, that you think could happen to threaten I, the supply and obviously the price of coffee? I don't know. It's it's hard. Like I, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to coffee. I try to be. Um, my job really is to try and be as neutral in all of this as possible, and it's just to understand and give people the facts. Um, there is just uh, just mentioning geopolitical issues just with 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 people just hating each other more and more these days and countries um you know wanting to not work with each other like for example uh, just hypothetically let's say 
Honduras and El Salvador don't like each other anymore. And migrant workers can't go from one country to another. They then can't pick coffee. And that coffee will then rot in a tree. It won't get exported. So little things like this can create huge issues down the supply chain. Um, one of the bigger issues mainly really can also be currency. When, when currencies in countries fluctuates, goes up and down, then those countries then will lose or, or gain money when they well, sell. Well, that's another factor as well. The Australian dollar is trading poorly compared to the US right now. So. Yes. Uh, the, the past week it's dropped four cents. Um, and when I'm quoting roasters coffees, uh, basically the, the currency daily is, is changing dramatically. So their coffee is increasing, you know, it can be 20 cents per day, depending on, on how far that changes. 20 cents per kilo. Which is, yeah, it doesn't sound like much, but over over time adds up, sort of thing. And I guess the, um, I guess I guess that would have you'd have to see like a, a an impact in you know buying a coffee soon. It seems to like never happen. I feel like the price has started to creep up a little bit in the last few years, but not enough relative so, to what's happening. So I read a report. Um, I can't remember the source, but it was saying that Australia has the fifty seventh most expensive cup of coffee. Uh, in the world. Mm. Um, Korea had the most expensive. So it was roughly seven US dollars per cup. Australia was about three US dollars at the time. Yet we have arguably the best coffee culture in the world. People still look at us as as this, you know, amazing coffee nation. Um, you know, Melbourne, for example, people come here every year to, to, to see it happening. Um, I'd argue that other countries are doing it potentially better, but that's the conversation for another day. Um, and so as you were saying, like the price of coffee has been historically cheap here in Australia and little factors over time um, have, it has slowly changed, but it's gone from, I think in Melbourne, it used to be about $4 to $4.50 for a coffee. Now it's about $5. So it's only the 50 cents. Um, and that's still not enough to cover the cost in which the, the green coffee has cost and the cost of, of production. I'm looking at the Starbucks website for Australia right now. I'm trying to see, I can't see any prices on there, but I'm pretty sure it's more expensive to get a coffee from Starbucks, like a latte. And McDonald's. And McDonald's is more expensive than a specialty cafe. Yep. And, yeah, the, the costs, they use lower-quality milk. They use lower-quality coffee. They've got, you know, a pimply teenager making it and, you know, the, the hygiene practices are poor. And yet they can charge more and people don't batter an eyelid. No, and it's uh, – I don't know if it's the entitlement of the Australian population, but we – Sometimes we're just happy, you know, at McDonald's because we're not there necessarily to get a coffee or we are there to get a coffee because it's convenient and you know that at McDonald's it's going to taste the same more or less at McDonald's in Melbourne, at McDonald's in Majura, at McDonald's in Swan Hill, Adelaide, Brisbane, Cairns. Like it's a consistent product. So people are willing to, to pay for said beverage whilst in a specialty cafe and because there's quite a lot of them, not everyone has the skill set to make, you know, a good cup of coffee and that can then go, why would I potentially want to spend $5 here when I can go to Macca's and I know it's probably going to taste the same. And this introduces to me a sort of larger economic argument of that it's it's so hard to make money as a cafe owner in Australia. Like there's a lot of success, successful businesses, sure, but like to get it to that point needs to be a really well, well-oiled machine. There's really no days off as a business owner. You, you know, you've got to be really on your money. And so like there's so many coffee shops that are just closing in the CBD of Melbourne and in the CBD of Sydney um, and I'm sure, you know, elsewhere across the globe because of, you know, things like the work from home arrangements so because of the pandemic and, you know, more people are accustomed to working from home, less people going to coffee shops in the city, a lot of coffee shops closing. And I kind of feel like the future of coffee, the future for a lot of cafes is that they'll actually be smaller. Yep. A lot of, you know, it's getting harder and harder to 
justify having a big cafe. We have to have a lot of staff to service it. And there's not necessarily more customers coming through the door. Um, and and so like I feel like the nature of it is like we're going to see smaller venues in the future, smaller offerings, so like you know less food, you know, f- fewer items. Um, and the, it's, it's really hard to staff it as well because – More automation. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean I, I always argue that that's the future. I and, have uh, – the irony that I do the Brewers' Cup – is that I am a massive fan of, of automation. Um, and most of you can't see it, but I uh, have a massive scar on my wrist um, from having an operation after making, you know, 1,200 coffees a day for like three years and just absolutely destroying myself. So the puck press didn't exist. Mm. Little things like this, um, you know, that can make the workflow of a business. Um, and it, it sounds like, you know, I'm trying to take jobs away from people. I'm actually trying to help a business be more successful but if you can have a, a more of a, a an automation in terms of just things that make your job easier it's going to make your your system better and and to relate it to the wine industry i i personally would like to see baristas on a similar level to a sommelier so it's you go to a venue to get the beverage but you get a chance to enjoy engage and understand more about the coffee because a lot of baristas, they don't talk to customers. They are busy behind the machine, pumping away, tamping away, et cetera, et cetera. And the floor staff are the ones that are giving a little more education, but maybe coffee isn't their thing. You know, they have maybe have a different interest whilst the barista wants to. And if there's an opportunity in a business where you can have a little more time, even if it's 10 seconds to say, hey, this coffee is from Bolivia. It's from the Rodriguez family who I know you love. Oh. And, you know, it's a cocoa natural java, et cetera. You know, please enjoy. Have an awesome day. We've got some on the shelves over here. Have it, you know, if you want some, some coffee to take home. Yeah, and I think as well, you touch on automation, something I'm also very passionate about, for one. I was actually speaking to um, Anthony Douglas and Jack Simpson recently, and they were telling me that they have baristas that they hire for their company, Axel, that come through that have never actually tamped, which is uh, an interesting thing because, you know, the puck press has come through and you've got this new generation of staff coming through that have never tamped. I find that really interesting. Luxury. Yeah, it's a luxury, but it's good. You know, it shows how far we've come. No, no, no I, 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 as I said, I, I mean, my wrist still still hurts from, from tamping too many coffees, so. Yep, yep, and, you know, probably too hard as well, David. Probably too hard. But I think as well, like that automation thing, I have a big project coming up on that. I can't leak too many details. I think you know a little bit about it. I've spoken to you about it. But I've got a big project coming up on that. You heard it here first. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're in this situation where you can, the argument can't really be made anymore, in my opinion, that you're taking people's jobs away. Because there's, there's more jobs out there than there are available, people available to fill them in the coffee industry. Well, they're in Australia anyway. So right, to me, that argument's dead. Um, and so you're looking at someone like a McDonald's who realistically in the future with all the technology coming out these days could have a specialty coffee range if they wanted to and yeah. you know produce it pretty well in the next 10 years because I mean, of the I mean, tech that'll be around. But if you... For example, um, at MICE, I had a lot of my team, that, uh, an old Australian that came to visit and they, they went to McCafe. And they don't have McCafe. In Australia, our McCafes, you know, they've got Black Eagles. I think they've got some Mythoses as well. I've seen Sam Remos there. Yeah, they've got amazing equipment. Maybe the skill set isn't there yet, but, you know, they can actually do it. So we have that luxury here in Australia where it's what we view as normal is not the standard worldwide. So I have no doubt that. You know those companies like McDonald's or or Hungry Jacks or you know, Burger King, depending on what part of the world you're in, will have an opportunity to to have a higher end offering and have better quality. Yeah, well, and it it's um, 
It's an untapped space. Yeah. And yeah. I think, as I said, like giving the, having consumers understand that it's, it is a little bit more of a luxury. It's not a necessity. You know, maybe your Nescafe blend, what is it, 43, that can be your, that can be your necessity. That can be the thing that gets you up and going. But going to a cafe should be about rewarding yourself to go have an amazing beverage, enjoy yourself, have a good cup of coffee and just relax. I think I feel like Uber Milk should sponsor this podcast because I give the, I don't I don't make a dime from those guys, but I help sell a lot. I feel like I do anyway. I give them a lot of props because I love that um, that that equipment. And there's a Uber Milk version two coming out. Uber Milk Plus, I think they call the it. one that can do the multiple milks. Yeah, it can do three milks at once, um, and it can be alternative milks as well. I think I a lot of these things happens post my barista career, so I never had a chance to experience Uber Milk. Um, or any other machine that does a similar thing. But I look at them and I'm amazed because it's consistent milk that comes out of a tap straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with like grinding on demand, etc. Anything that can grind by weights and, and if it has an inbuilt puck press or tamping automatic tamper, I think that's also amazing. Um, and it's consistent product because if all of these smaller specialty coffee shops can make coffee more consistently good or it tastes the same between venue to venue, then people will go. Mm. They won't want to go to McDonald's because they know that, oh, this coffee uses this brand and tastes pretty good. And if, and you can lower your labour costs as well by implementing the correct combination. Hey, I just had a really impulsive thought. I'm going to introduce a segment right here, right now called Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. And I'm going to give a big, fat thumbs down to the alternative milk industry. <laughs> and here's why. They always – have you noticed every single alternative milk brand – it always comes in like a one liter cardboard carton. Yes. And so, yeah, additional waste, if you will. Um, and it, it comes in boxes. There's, they're very flamboyantly packaged. And that's also an industry that's in a r- big fat race to the bottom as well. So I've spent a fair bit of time working in the food service industry in the last two years. Big fat thumbs down to the alternative milk companies. I'm sorry, but I don't like you right now. You need to change your practices. Yeah, I mean, as you say, like, a, you know, a regular bottle of milk is two liters. Mm-hmm. Um, yet the, the the boom of of alternative milks is, as you said, it's in in a liter cardboard box. Um, and if they did it in two liters, or if they did it in larger bladders for the cafe industry, because we can see. The, I mean, I drink oat milk. Mm. I don't. I'm lactose intolerant. I, I drink, love oat milk. I drink black coffee, or I drink if I if I want a milky, sorry, in brackets milky. Um, I'll have an oat uh, beverage and. Yeah, you're right. They need to up their game in terms of their practices, in terms of packaging, etc., to, to make it easier for cafes to use. Yeah, and you know, I feel like there's one brand I've got to give a shout out to, Oat Milk Goodness. That's Steve Smith, the uh, Australian cricketers brand. Oh. They, uh, for a brief time, I think, produced a ten liter bladder, and it's harder to do. Um, I also love Smudge. So yeah, I, yeah, I, no, love him. Uh, hopefully, we get him on the podcast. He's a he's a coffee fan himself. Yes, um, yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd. Well, listen. Yeah, I mean, as I said at the beginning of this, long-time listener, first-time caller, I definitely listen. Okay, but like that—that's that, that's an area of the industry where we can sort of um, there's a highly competitive space, but it's kind of also monopolized in Australia. I don't know what it's really like out, out in the rest of the world, but there's a. But it, it can similarly be to green coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's maybe five to ten green coffee companies at either export, mill or import pretty much all the coffee in the world. Mm. And so they therefore have a little bit of a monopoly on that as well. 
And the same thing can be said in, in, in most industries. There's a bunch of companies that basically, you know, look at Kraft and Nestle. They own almost, or InBev, for example, they own almost every single beer company in the world. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I think with, uh, I don't know much about the oat milk uh, or the alternative milk space, um, but I have obviously seen it visually, the, the rise, and uh, you go to mice and there's a huge amount of display of, of uh, alternative milks and there's clearly... Uh, money to be made or, or uh, as you said, racing to the bottom. People are cutting costs, but it's a, it's a massive space. Mm. Um, and again, with like green coffee, you can see that as well. Like um, a lot of uh, smaller independent importers will be buying from the larger uh, exporters because they just have all the coffee or the access to all the coffees. Um, and that's a yeah, fascinating and interesting and sometimes uh, complicated yeah, and look, I mean, if you work for an alternative milk company or if you have one and you're doing something good, hit us up in the uh, Sub-Zero DMs. Getting, you know, I uh, apologise to anyone. If you are doing work, I haven't given you a shout-out, but collectively I'm giving you all a thumbs down still. Uh, I suppose if we give a thumbs down, we've got to give a thumbs up. Who we get, have you got a thumbs up for anyone? Oh, that's tough. Thumbs up in the coffee industry right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds cliche, but... Just all the farmers and okay. everyone that's everyone that stuck through it over the past couple of years. Um, it's been tough in the industry for everyone, um, and I've always felt conflicted being over here. And you know, um, but at the end of the day, I've always wanted to champion the producers. So all of them that have that have ridden through all the history, particularly the past three or so years, and are still coming out now, and 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 things seem to be okay at the moment. Um, for me, that's a thumbs up. You know, the ones that stuck to it. Oh, we need we need a more spicy one as well. Like oh, that's a good one. That's an average one. It's the one. Yeah. But I need I need something a bit more mm. like a, like a thumbs up spicy version. Oh, well, not spicy, but just like one more thumbs up. Uh, just so we're, you know the positives need to outweigh the negatives here. I gave a big fat thumbs down, so I need like a, I need a big fat thumbs up too. <sighs> putting me you really put me on the spot here. I'm putting myself on the spot here. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Big thumbs up to. I'm going to give one to Malconic. I was about to say the same thing because they finally aligned the EK birds. They aligned them? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Well, big thumbs up to Malconic. And all right, so we got one, and I'm going to give one A or one B rather. And that's for the Grimebow 8 Grinders. Um, massive fan. Massive, massive fan. fan. Um, that, like, it's just a good service to the industry. They all work mostly well. I've heard a few stories of, you know, every now and then they've, they. They fail. Just don't bash the load cell. You know, the load cell's on the tines there. Just you don't need to go slamming your th- your, your porter filter into it. Sometimes you need to balance the the. Uh, you need to have it on a level surface. But they're getting a big thumbs up from me. And uh, by extension, I guess I'll give Maki Bar a bit of a thumbs up as well. I don't know if they. You know, the Maki Bar Izaga. No. So it's a it's a it's a co- uh, grinder that grinds the uh, coffee and then. Like it has a ground coffee, uh, ground dose ready to go. So you just whack it in; it just all drops out. Similar to the slingshot. Oh, I'm not familiar with the slingshot, but anyway, I'll give I'll give a I'll give a thumbs up to those guys for um, doing some good service. And if you use one of those well, if you use one of those well, you'll be able to. It's one of those things where that will save you money as well because you're able to just save time by not having to weigh everything and you know to. It's one of the if you're using it in combination with good machinery plus an oob milk and skilled people, smart people, to do really well. But it's all it all leads back to like a benefit for everyone in the industry. So less wastage means that roasters, uh, sorry, cafes are obviously 
saving costs and then they're um, buying a consistent amount of coffee and if they've got lower overheads, they can pay more for their coffee. Um, Sorry. I don't know. One thing I, wanna, I, I really want to condition people to start doing is ordering off an app if you can at the coffee shop because like if you, if, you, if you order off an app or QR code, then you're, you're kind of saving the server time and you can, you know, that, that's kind of reducing the cost in, as well in a way because, you know, it costs money to have someone take your order and things like that. If you can, order off the app. I'm a big fan of those. I don't think anyone's really gone deep in enhancing the experience of, like, electronic ordering and, like... We have... Uh, it's, it's like, I guess, using Shopify or something like that in terms of uh, buying something online, um, but in, a, like, a, a, a physical space. So it's similar to, uh, I guess, uh, as a green coffee importer, someone ordering through like an online platform, like Automentum, for example. Even though we don't use that, but as a roaster, they would use Automentum. It potentially saves time for someone to, to, to get that going. And therefore, they, that, that time can be spent servicing the account better. Um, so I'm, I, again, you and I are on the same page when it comes to just using technology for the benefit of our industry um, there are things like Farmly, which are helping to connect people and uh, roasters directly with farmers by using those platforms. Um, so I think anything, if I can walk into a cafe, scan a menu, potentially place the order, I would. And if you had, I, I, I was um, recently working in Sydney and I had a whole bunch of kids from the University of Sydney come up and say, um, they were doing a project on coffee grounds and they asked me, what are you doing with your coffee grounds? And I, I was kind of explaining to them that, I'd say 95% of coffee grounds in Australia are just thrown out yep. you know, as general waste. But it's kind of like rich in nutrients that you could use to make sort of fertilizer or um, or you can – I think there's even a way to make mushrooms with them as well. Like I've seen a startup in Western Australia, they, they actually use it to, to grow mushrooms or they can use it to make biofuel as well. There was also a study recently, I think, using coffee grounds in cement can make it 30% stronger. Yeah, right. So there's – I mean, coffee has – an insane amount of benefits for, for many different uses. But people make a coffee, throw the grounds out, and discard it. But this is the thing. If you're a business – if you're if you're someone savvy listening to this and you're resourced and you've got, you've got the means to uh, kind of make a business out of it, here's a free tip. If you go to any coffee shop and you offer to take the grounds off them and give them a sort of practical solution like a bin or something for them to dump it in and you come collect it at no cost for a cafe – they will 100% give it to you for free. Um, you know, there's businesses even that uh, – there's one business that called Reground that ta- that take it, but you got to pay for that. Um, there, There's a way you could get that for free, and I'm not trying to shit on Reground's business model. But, like, you're, you're saving them, like, lots of waste uh, or lot, lots of space in their bin. You know, you got to pay to get your bins emptied, and Coffee Grounds take up a huge portion of it as well. Yeah, it's so heavy. It's so heavy. Um, and so if you're, if you're someone out there that wants to, you know, make fertilizer out of coffee grounds there in, in your city, just, just put a little bin in each cafe for them to take and remove it for them each day. And you've got yourself a business. Like I used to have someone come in to my dad's cafe in Sydney, 2007 and ask us for our grounds. And you know, this is, I don't even know anymore, 16 years ago. Um, and people looked at it as like some sort of weird alternative practice. And all, all, all he was doing was using it to, to fertilize and, and then using that in his garden to grow his veggies. And I feel like having a veggie patch is something that a lot of people should start doing for now. And given the way that like food's going up and prices and that sort of thing, like I feel like having a home garden is going to become a much more fashionable thing. Well, community gardens, you know, you've just got, or even you can grow herbs anywhere. 
you know, it's it's there's the benefits of of all of that, and then the less waste we have in the coffee industry, it, for me, always is a benefit because then it can pass back to the producer. So roasters will stop wanting cheaper coffee because they can afford to spend a little bit more, which then always heads back to the one, origin. One thing I wanted to actually touch on that I almost forgot about is that being a career barista is not necessarily a bad thing. Like there's a there's a bit of a stigma around it. People are like, oh, you dropped out of uni and like I'm a, I have a degree and yet I still, you know, abandoned becoming a journalist when I, you know, I've got job offers and stuff, but I wanted to make coffee instead because I liked it more. But, you know, but like say for example at your local cafe, there's like a bit of a talent vacuum I feel like these days where, you know, a lot of the best baristas, they want to move on to something that's higher paid or, you know, a bit easier for them so they go and become a roaster or they go and work in sales in a coffee company. And so those good baristas, they're not necessarily replaced by equally skilled people. And so like, yeah, paying a little bit more for coffee and, and you know, paying a higher wage to, to for someone to stick in that job and make it a you know reasonable career, there's a bit in that. Yeah, it, it creates. So my, my goal in coffee is to help create a sustainable supply chain. And I don't necessarily, I mean, it'd be amazing if that was environmental but and and social, but in terms of also just economical. So I'm helping to get a producer coffee that they need at, at a price point in which they want. And I'm helping to connect a roaster, sorry, a producer to get the coffee um, sold at a price in which they need f- for their business to survive. And that includes the cafes that buy those coffee. So if there's less cafes and less people making coffee, the roasters buy this coffee, I get to buy less coffee and I don't get to support that producer. So it's a self. This is what I get off on in coffee. I love just connecting people and seeing producer from said farm in said roasters' hands in said cafe. And so any part in in this in which we can help to boost the the the, the sustainability of someone's career, whether it is production, roasting, or or baristering, is always a benefit. So if someone if we can afford to pay more along the whole supply chain, this this benefits everyone and. You know, people may argue that we have quite high wages in Australia for hospitality, which we do, but we also have very high cost of living. But it's obviously not enough. I know people that have left the industry recently that are extremely educated, spent 15 to 20 years in our coffee industry because they're going to get paid better money elsewhere. Had that money been invested back into their education and their skill set and just to, to pay them a little bit better, they would have stayed and it would have been a benefit to all of us. But this is kind of the vicious cycle of the whole topic we're talking about, right? Is the, you know, we've got these, you know, economic situations where you know the, the cost of everything's going up so much and then because you don't make enough coffee make make enough money doing what you do at work um and because the cafe doesn't make enough money to pay you more all those sorts of things it's kind of like a vicious cycle right if we all just paid like a buck more you know which is at this rate is probably like 20 percent you know increase in the the price of coffee it'd help a great deal it is um i Screamed for many, many years that we weren't paying enough. When when lattes and cappuccinos here in Melbourne were three to three dollars fifty, I was saying it has to be five dollars. Mm. Um, unfortunately, COVID era came along and everything just dramatically increased, and obviously now inflation and everything on top on top of that, and now people are only charging five dollars just to make ends meet. Had we started five years ago, four years ago, paying five dollars, those coffees now would probably be seven or eight dollars, and we wouldn't be in this situation. Do we give another thumbs down to the sort of coffee wholesalers that charge too little? Is that too spicy? No, 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 no. I think uh, so thumbs down, official. Wah, 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 wah. I, need a, to, I need to get a little sound effect for that. There is a thumbs down to 
the roasters that yeah flooded the market with cheaper deals, cheaper coffees to 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 build business. It's one thing to be competitive, like if it's competitive, whatever. But like ridiculous. Yeah, I've heard stories. R- ridiculous of, practice. I've heard stories of sub in today's market sub twenty dollars per kilo with a grinder and a machine, and that is not sustainable at all. Mm, yeah, at, there's no level of that is viable for any business. I would argue it's almost impossible to offer specialty coffee. Like I, I feel like it could be e- even a non uh, specialty grade coffee. The the the. The price point between a 79 and a sort of, I guess, borderline 80-point coffee and 80-point to 84-point coffee isn't dramatically large. So the money in which, you know, the quality of the coffee they're buying, it could be extremely old crop and sold at a loss from an importer or an exporter because it's it's dead money. So it needs to be sold. And so the coffee quality itself is going to be pretty bad. Um, and if that deal comes across a cafe's hands, your, your customer will, will taste that. So... This is today, you know, hearing that there's $20 per kilo or less. It's not sustainable for anyone. And that's a massive thumbs down, in my opinion. And I may ruffle some feathers, but that is that is not the way in which our industry needs to operate. Mm. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's a big threat to the industry. It's kind of like I've, I, I kind of wonder about the viability of some of the places that offer that sort of thing. It's like, you know, with machine finance going the way – or finance in general going the way it is, if you're – sort of offering these things and there's a big spike in interest rates and I don't know how it applies to, to them, but like that's something that could be a bit sensitive as well. Yeah, it is, it, but it's, it's, it's extremely complicated and it's, it's, it's not viable. And there's many factors in, in how they might be buying their coffee. Um, as I said, that coffee could be old crop, could have been sold at a discount. There could be, for example, there are some issues in Ethiopia with foreign currency. Um, and so there are, exporters that are popping up and selling Ethiopian coffees at below cost to generate US dollar to go back into their uh, economy so they can buy other things. It could be farming equipment or whatever it is for their business. So they're selling it like a, as a loss leader. And so you get a similar thing with they may be buying coffee elsewhere. And this is where it's not an ethical trade. It's you know not even transparent. It's just they're buying it at said price, selling it at said price, could be old, could have been bought that way. And no one in this, in this, in this wins. Um, there's the cafes don't win, the roasters who they're competing against don't win. No, no one is in this situation. Potentially, the people that have sold the coffee that have then generated USD, they are winning. And if you're a cafe that's kind of sticking to your guns and staying with your existing supplier who's charging more for a reason, thumbs up to you. Exactly. I think if hopefully whoever has supplied you coffee um, has been able to to relate as to why your cost of goods are coming up. Some of the conversations I had when COVID really kicked off and we had the frost in Brazil and the cost of coffee like quadrupled overnight was heartbreaking. You know, having some of these roasters that have been buying exceptional coffees for many years and supporting, you know, single farm lots, awesome coffees. And that coffee goes from like, let's say $8 green to $15 green per kilo overnight, it's heartbreaking because that roaster has to then factor in these costs and massive thumbs up to those roasters that stuck buying those coffees and to the cafes that kept supporting them and could see that they were doing the right thing. Yeah, no, I'll pay that. Big thumbs up there. Do you reckon, maybe I keep thumbs up, thumbs down. Get like a bit, get a graphic going, get, get, get a sound audio bike going for it. I think I like thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, I think it gives, uh, particularly as it was definitely something I wasn't prepared for. Yeah, <laughs> like, neither was I. Like, I, I just popped into my brain, and that's that's a lot of the things in this podcast. No, no, I think it, I think it gives uh, 
definitely with the different people you have on the podcast and their perspective, you know, um, I enjoy hearing it because you have people from different parts of the industry and I hear, I love hearing their opinion because what I do is, is, is one part, but it's only, you know, a single part within a multi-layered industry in which we operate. Um, so for me, yeah, I think it's, it's a thumbs up to thumbs up. I've got a few irrelevant questions to ask you now. I'm going to start with a not even coffee related sort of topic. And that is you, you, you remarked as you walked in here, it smelled really good. Yeah. And that is because I've, for three hours, had a curry cooking over there. Got a uh, dialed now. I've been a vegetarian since about June last year. Uh, and so curry is, a, I don't think I go a week without eating curry. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think I go two days without eating it anymore. It's it's the best food you can possibly eat. And this is before I was a vegetarian anyway. So anyway, so i got a beautiful curry cooking over there. Um, I might even serve you up a little if you if you want to take it. Um, it's dull, so, you know universally enjoyable but back to back to coffee um what are some of the best coffees you've had of late i always last well give me the give me a top three ever can you can you do it a top three a top three ever a, a top three ever ever yeah i am um, i'm very spoiled mm. i have i've Same. Had, i've had access to you and i both share a very good mutual friend at, with mr matthew winton Oh yeah, I've got a whole bunch of his coffees coming this weekend at Only Coffee Project, and he has, uh, yeah, spoiled me with with some of the lots that he has roasted, brewed, etc. From Longboard, and uh, to be honest, oh man, this is tough. Okay, first, the first coffee that truly blew my mind, that really changed my perception on coffee, uh, was in Hamburg in twenty twelve. And I'd already been working in coffee for many years and made it and, you know, didn't really think too much of it, but it was a, a washed Kenyan. Oh, they're the best. Made as espresso. Um, I cannot remember the farm or the co-op, but it, I know the roaster. It was Backhandel, based in Nuremberg in Germany. And this was pure Ribena juice. And this coffee, like, this was the this was the first time in my life that I truly was like, Wow. Like this is this is what it, where it's at. Um, second one will be it wasn't a coffee that I drank. It was I was living in uh, in Germany. This is 2016 at Man versus Machine, and my sister was visiting me. And my sister never drank coffee. Um, was lactose intolerant, so she would only ever have like soy mochas or soy hot chocolates. And I was sitting down drinking um, an Ethiopian natural uh, batch brew, uh, Bertikawana. It was it was delicious. Not the best coffee I've ever had. But my sister turned around to me and says, can I have a sip? It smells great. I was like, yep, cool, not a problem. Gave it to her. <laughs> and I kid you not, she was like, what is this? I was like, this is, this, you know, it's an Ethiopian natural coffee. It's, you know, we roasted it here. It's a batch brew. She's like, this is amazing. She's like, this is what you've been doing all these years. This is coffee. And I was like, yes. And so she, what she did then, she went to the retail shelf, bought a Paul X grinder, went home, got an AeroPress, Got a subscription to, she's like, what's a good roaster? Uh, she lives in the UK. Um, she had a local coffee shop using Square Mile. She's like, I'm just going to buy a subscription to Square Mile. And then a few years later, she's bought a pour over kettle. She's got some scales. And it's just, and she was 32 at the time. And made, so that was a, an amazing experience for me. Um, and then I think. So I, ha- I think maybe I have to say the hundred point coffee. Um, that coffee was, yeah, f- 
pretty flawless, but I think any of the coffees that I've managed to share with um, the people that have helped me in competition, so in particularly uh, Danny or Dang and then and then Freddie, those those two guys have helped me a lot and the coffees that we've made together have been flawless. But all the best coffees have unfortunately been like hidden away. I haven't had a chance to share them with many people. Yeah, okay. But uh, I'm... I'm a big fan of Abu Coffee, ABU. You know Abu from Panama? I yes. I feel like they've kind of flashed on the scene in the last few years as well, but I'm uh, getting a whole bunch. I washed and a natural from uh, washed and natural geisha for this weekend at. Um, Roasted by whom? Rose Coffee. Oh. Uh, Matt, Matt Winton. I was about uh, to say, I've, I've, I've had some of theirs, yes. Uh, it was good. I haven't even tried it yet. I haven't had a bad coffee from, from Rose, and it's not because Matt's a mate. Like, it's, I mean, he buys, ironically, he buys good coffee. Mm. Does a good, pretty good job. Yeah, no, he's always got some of the best stuff. But I'm really excited to have that, and I've never had a bad coffee from him either. But uh, oh. sorry, okay. I just remembered the best one of the best coffees. I know I've already said three. I'm very sorry for this. Was in Colombia at the Las Margaritas farm that belongs to Cafe Granula Esperanza, and I apologise if I've mispronounced that. I, I do not speak. No, Spanish. You did it. You did it really well. I say Cafe Granja, <laughs> like, a, like um, a stupid Australian, and. Uh, they opened up a fermentation tank for a wash process coffee and it was just filled with pulp um, and put my hand, they said, put your hand through and then take a sip. I put my hand through and I took a sip and it was like mango, elderflower, passion fruit, like this pulpy beverage. Wow. And I was like, what are we doing roasting this stuff? We should just be selling this bottled liquid. That. Yeah, right. Was so it wasn't even the coffee itself. It was just not at the, all. No. The, the juices. The juices fun. in the fermentation tank of the geisha cherry. The geisha seeds, sorry. Okay, I like it. Well, I mean, David, that uh, that just about exhausts the questions I had for you. Did you have any concluding remarks for the, the Sub-Zero listener? Concluding remarks? I think, no. <laughs> um, pay more for coffee. Pay more. Pay more for coffee. Um, and I don't mean... If you wish to spend $10,000 per kilo on coffee and you have the financial means, please, that's what I mean. But what I mean by that is, you know, pay a little bit more, buy slightly better coffee from a reputable roaster and it all trickles down. And at the end of the day, it's going to make uh, our industry better um, and stay cool. Yeah, that's, that's a great note to finish on. As always, everyone, stay cool. Stay cool.